We come back to uh, the mission uh, of the church discipleship uh, series, uh, which is working together with the book that we are studying as a church, which the mission of the church. But we're talking about now how we do discipleship, not just what the church is here for, but how do we do it in daily life uh, discipleship. And we see that the mission of the church is to make disciples from every people group in the world. Uh, we see that from Matthew 28, where the disciples are told to make disciples from every nation. And that begins exactly where you are. You don't have to go somewhere else. You don't have to be in a different place. You don't have to be in a different state of life in order to be making disciples. And we've seen that discipleship is the constant process in which a Christian is helped by the covenant community that is the local church but to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ so that he becomes progressively conformed to the image of Jesus and can in turn disciple others. So that's what we're after, discipleship, growing to be more like Jesus Christ in the community that the Lord has placed us in. And we've seen that every Christian is a disciple. As a matter of fact, the Bible uses these two words, disciple and Christian, synonymously and interchangeably. So you're not a Christian who becomes a disciple. You're not a disciple who becomes a Christian. Both happen at the same time. That Those are same terms for the same people. In addition to that, we've seen that every Christian is, at the same time, discipling others and being discipled. That this is true of every, everyone. I, the illustration I have for that doesn't work for most people, but it's, it's kind of like 32 degrees Fahrenheit. What happened at 32 degrees Fahrenheit? Not only that, also melting. So both things are happening at the same time. Like water is becoming ice and ice is becoming water. And that's the, the disciple there. Disciple, you're being discipled and, being, and discipling at the same time. And that's our whole entire life. So we can say that a Christian is a disciple-making disciple. That's who we are. And, and we've seen also the importance of cross-generational discipleship. Uh, in the, in, at some point in the history of the church, it became popular to segment churches by age and affinity. So that you only spent time with people that were the same age as you and... In, with the same interests uh, as yours. The problem with that is it, it creates a big problem for discipleship, since cross-generation discipleship is so important, as Paul tells Titus, and as we saw last time we were together, where the young and old must be interacting so that all can grow in Christ. And that's how the church becomes more like Jesus Christ, where generationally, cross-generationally, we're interacting with one another and help us, helping each other grow in Jesus Christ. That's where we've been so far in our series on discipleship. Today I want us to consider another venue of discipleship, a very important venue of discipleship, and that is marriage. Marriage provides a place to practice most of the one another's of the Bible. We mistakenly think that only family passages apply to the family. But all relational passages apply to the family. In addition to the general one another's of the Bible, there are, there are specific 
ways in which a husband and a wife disciple each other. And so in this phase of our study of discipleship, we will examine three passages that speak of discipleship in marriage. We're going to look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. We're going to look at 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. And we're going to look at Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. But in order to understand marriage as a relationship in which discipleship takes place, we need first to understand the overall roles of the husband and the wife in marriage. And as I say that at this point, some of you may be tempted to think that this lesson doesn't apply to you. Why did I come to church? I could have stayed home and sleep a little later, just come to the morning service because this is not for me. If that's where you are, I encourage you to repent. <laughs> I encourage you to, uh, no, maybe the repent is too strong. I, I encourage you to resist the temptation uh, to think that this is not for you because everything in the Word of God is profitable for you. And you may be called to help someone else in this area. And especially today's lesson, as we look at the role of the wife in marriage, we all, no matter what stage of life you are in, can learn from it because that's the pattern for our obedience to Christ. So when we look at what the Bible says concerning the wife, we learn how all of us are to behave in relationship to Christ, who is our head. Are you with me so far? All right. So as, as we examine what God says concerning marriage with the goal of being disciple-making disciples in our marriages, we will start with Ephesians 5, starting verse 22 through 33, and follow the order that the Holy Spirit laid out in this passage. And I say that because the Holy Spirit first talks about the wife and then goes to uh, the husband after that. So let's read through the passage, such a familiar passage, and when we come to a familiar passage, we run the risk of missing stuff, because I think we naturally go, yeah, yeah, well, I know what you say, it says, and then move on from that. So let's read verses 22 through 33. Um, let's try to take it in, all that it says. So Paul starts in verse 22, wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects 
her husband. Our culture does not see submission of any kind as virtues. The idea that someone or anyone should submit to someone else seems to be un-American, since we are the land of the free. At least we used to be the land of the free. Yet every relationship in life is based on some level or another on submission. If you just move one verse earlier to where we begin, being filled by the Spirit means, if you look at verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So every relationship that we are in involves some level of submission. It's interesting that if you go, if you go through the larger catechism, the forgotten catechism in our Constitution, and you go to the section of the Ten Commandments, they, the catechism does a great job showing, and it uses language that we're not com- comfortable with anymore, but it, it, it talks about this idea of mutual submission by in every command, at least the second table of law, so commands five through the end, saying, what is our duty to our superiors based on this command? What is our duty to our equals and what is our duty to our inferiors? And they're not looking down their nose when you use the word inferiors or superior, but the idea that we are always submitting to somebody Somebody's always submitting to us. That's just how life works in in general, and especially in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God has established roles in marriage that includes the role of the wife as the submitting partner. See that in verse 22. But even before we focus on the wife, let's pull back just a little bit and look at the family as a display of Christian virtue, as the place where Christian virtues are to be present and displayed. Uh, As you know, Ephesians and Colossians are um, parallel books. They probably were written within days or weeks from each other, sent to the churches in the same general region of Turkey, and Colossians is a shorter version, as it were, of Ephesians, a different emphasis in Ephesians, but it has a lot of the same things, including these instructions to uh, husbands and to wives. And in the book of Colossians, this section on the several relationships in the church and society is a continuation of the display of Christian virtues. This is what I mean. mean. The family, more than any other context will be the place where all the Christian virtues of Colossians 3, 12, and 13 will be displayed. So let me read verses 12 and 13 of Colossians chapter 3. And and Paul there lists a a bunch of virtues. And we think about those virtues in the context of other people outside of the family. But really the family and then the church are the two places where these virtues are to be displayed primarily, first of all. So Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. You see the list of virtues that Paul gives us there? Uh, he talks about 
tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. These are virtues that are to be practiced in the family. And yet, in practice, we often work harder at making a good impression of everyone outside of the immediate family while not displaying kindness, compassion, etc. in the family. Are you with me on that? So often we think that the stakes are higher in relation to people outside of the family than we are with people inside of the family. And yet, at the last day, we're going to give an account for our families, not primarily for our, about our neighbors or the strangers that we met at Starbucks and so on. So if you think of Ephesians 5, 22, 23, in the same context as Colossians, the flow of information seems to be the same in both books. We could say that Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is an application of Colossians 3, 17, where Paul says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And... The reason I say that Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is the application of what I just read here is because this verse leads directly into, in Colossians, the discussion about husband, wife, parenting, and so on. So what is, what is it that we're doing as husbands, as husbands as, and wives in our marriage? We are doing whatever we do in word and deed in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's what our marriages are supposed to be the application of. That's what our marriage is supposed to be the display of. And that's important for us to keep in mind. Are you with me so far? Any questions? The household in the Bible is the basic unity of society and church. And not just in the Bible, anywhere. That's the basic unity unit of society and the church. If you look at the book of Genesis, the first, very first institution is marriage and family. The second is civil government. So marriage and family, Genesis 2. Civil government, Genesis 9. And then the church established in Genesis chapter 12 with the Abrahamic covenant. So the family is the unit of all these other uh, things, the, the household. And the household is made of all who are represented by its head. In the New Testament, the household would include any slaves owned by the head of the household. Today, the household would be the equivalent of the family and anyone who lives with and depends on the family. In the Bible... More than the individual, the household, the family, is the unit on which everything is built. And that's, that's countercultural. Uh, the United States, especially on the west of the United States, individualism reigns paramount. Is the utmost virtue is to be independent and not need anybody else. And yet in the scriptures, the individual doesn't matter as much as the family. That unit is the, uh, the most important block. Now, the family may consist of one person or many people. 
So let's keep that in mind. Uh, the, the nuclear family is not necessarily the biblical definition of family. Maybe it be one person and be a, a family, and might be more than one person, still a family. And I hope we understand that the family is under attack from the world and from Satan. And the reason why the family is under attack from the world and from Satan is because they know that if they destroy the family, they'll have won the battle, the war. Not just the battle, but the war. And this is important for everyone, no matter where you are in life. The battle for the family is a battle that you must be fighting. Young, old, in between, single, married, widowed, divorced, no matter what your status is, you must be fighting for the family. Because that's the basic unit of society and of the church. Destroy the family, civil government, society in general breaks down, and the church will also break down. Are you with me? Any questions on that? We're going to emphasize that a little more when you talk about discipleship and child rearing. Because a lot of times the Christians seem to be the only one not fighting for the child's heart. Everybody else seems to be fighting for that child's heart except for the, parent, the Christian parent. All right, so let's get into what Paul says in verse 22 of Ephesians 5. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The original language of verse 22 simply says, The women to their own men as to the Lord. These are all the words that are there in verse 22. The women to their own men as to the Lord. The verb submits borrowed from verse 21. And from verse 24. So those two verses provide the verb for verse 22. Now, the Greek language has no original word, no single word for husband or for wife. It simply just uses the word for woman and the word for man. But we know that Paul is referring to husbands and wives in this passage rather than generally men and women because the context tells us that he is addressing the several familial household relationships in the church. And as you study a Bible, ultimately the context defines every word. Not the dictionary, but how that word is being used in that, um, in that context. You know, a, a lot of people tend to say, oh, but look how the word is formed. And the forming of the word should dictate how we understand the word. To that, I say, think about the word butterfly. If you're going to say, oh, let's break the word down and look at the words that form it, would you come to the understanding that butterfly is this insect that flies around, a little bug, and it goes from being a, a little creepy crawly thing and becomes a beautiful butterfly and flies away? No, you'd think of something that you spread on your bread and you have to chase around because it's flying around the kitchen, right? So uh, context is king when you're interpreting the scriptures. And it's interesting that Paul says the woman, the women are to submit to the man, implying a specific group of men, specific group of women, namely husbands and wives. 
So Paul describes the wife as the submitting partner in the marriage relationship. There has been a lot said and written trying to explain away this idea of submission because it's not culturally acceptable. It's uh, from people saying, you know what? Paul didn't write Colossians or Ephesians or Titus and Peter did not write 1 Peter. There's nobody of consequence that says that anymore because uh, Ephesians and Colossians are, are two of the epistles that is almost is 99.9% undeniable that the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, that's a, a point, point that John Gresham Machen made in the 1920s where the liberals would say, well, only there is only four epistles written by Paul. Everything else is false. And, and Machen said, I don't agree with you. But let me just take your premise. I'm just going to grab these four epistles and I'll show you that Paul believed in all the things that the other epistles teach. So nobody holds to that, that idea that the submission is not for us because Paul didn't really say it. Now, some people, a lot of people actually would say that Paul was just conforming to the culture of the time. If he lived now, he would not have said these things. Uh, uh, evangelical egalitarians will, will say uh, this. Egalitarian is a person who says there's no different, difference in roles in a marriage relationship. <clears throat> that everything is the same. Do you see a problem with the argument? The argument is that Paul was conform, conforming to the culture of the time. If he lived today, he would not have said that. Do you see any problem with that argument? What is that? It doesn't align with that time. It does, this argument aligns, right? That the women were submissive to, to submit to the husband. Lewis. Right. Right. So, um, the the Bible is inspired, and God doesn't change. Therefore, His word doesn't change. Now, the thing is, we do agree that there are some things that are culturally bound in the Bible. Are you with me? I, for example, I don't see any of our women wearing head coverings out of First Corinthians eleven. But it's, it's clear from the passage that Paul is using a cultural element to talk about submission. Right? So we do agree there are some passages that we should take culture in consideration. But why is it that just to apply as a blanket that, that whatever we don't agree today is culturally um, attached to the time that Paul wrote? Chris? There's only one Timothy. Well, you know what I mean. Which book? Um, so he's he's harping. He's putting the framework of creation. Okay. Yeah. You you're in the good argument, but it was in First Corinthians 11 that he uses the role of creation. In First Timothy 2 is the fall that he yeah the women fell. Oh yeah. Yeah, but you're you're on the right track. It's a good point here. The problem I see, the greatest problem I see with, with this argument is that Paul doesn't seem to be too concerned with the culture of the time when he challenges, challenges other issues. 
For example, homosexuality was largely accepted in the culture of the first century. As a matter of fact, uh, the Roman emperors would have uh, 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 the, his boys and his girls in his harem. So th- this was generally accepted in culture in the first century, and yet Paul goes against the culture of the first century to condemn homosexuality. Sexual immorality in general was actually a form of worship. In Corinth, that's how you worship the several gods, is by going to the temple and practicing sexual immorality, and yet he's against that. So um, drunkenness. Drunkenness was, was completely acceptable culturally, and yet he goes against that. The role of women in religious services, that's what the argument that does, and the people say, oh, Paul is saying that women should not have the preeminence and the leadership of the church because that's cultural. But the problem is the first century, most religious cults, and I'm being cult here in, in the sense of worshiping a god, was led by, were led by priestess, priestesses, not priests. So he's going counterculturally in all these arguments. So to say that, oh, he's just sub- submitting to the culture, that doesn't seem to really match everything else that Paul says. On top of that, to make the argument that Chris made, Paul also says that the structure of the family is based on how God created men and women. And that is not culturally bound. The creation is the same, no matter what culture you're in. No matter what century you live, the creation is still, the count still the same. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 through 10, Paul says, For man is not from woman, but woman for a man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Don't think about the symbol of authority right now, but this idea that the structure of the family established at creation is important. And I hope you see that important because it, trans- it, it uh, transcends time and transcends culture. doesn't matter if you're here in Brazil, in Africa, or in Asia. This is true. Does it make sense to you? Any questions of that? We're still answering the argument that some people say today, and I, I dare say it would be the majority of broadly described evangelicals that would claim that the, the submission is not something that is for us today. Another argument I think that is that idea is crazy is that the word submission means something... Well, they say that the word submission means something other than submission. That submission does not mean submission. And, and, and the, the reason some people feel compelled with, for, to make that argument is that they are trying to preserve the integrity of the Scriptures. But they, at the same time, they want to lessen the impact of saying that the wife should submit to her husband. Do, do any of you own the message... Burn it. No, I'm sure. No, that's not true. I, I, I was going to say that before you raise your hand. Sorry, no. No. The message was a, a one man's paraphrase or commentary on the Bible, right? Eugene Peterson uh, did that. It's a good commentary. It's not a version of the Bible. It's not a translation in any sense of the word. But he, he, that's how he renders Colossians 3.18. He says, Wives, understand and support your husbands by submitting to them in ways that honor 
the master. So they make submission as understanding and supporting. The problem is that the word itself is used, remember, context is king. The word is used throughout the Bible to mean submission, as you'd think of submission. For example, in Luke chapter 2, verse 51, talking about Jesus' relationship to his parents, and says this, Luke says, He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject, as the same word as Ephesians 5, was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. Is young Jesus just uh, understanding and supporting his parents? Or is he obeying them? Romans 13, 1 and 5, Paul says, Let every soul be subject to the government authorities. And he says, Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for cautious sake. Is Peter, is, again, Paul saying, Be understanding and supporting of the government. Or he's saying, you know, if, if, you, if the rule, the laws they have are righteous and you break them, you deserve death. Again, uh, Titus, Paul is speaking to slaves. He says, exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters. Is again, is he saying, slaves, be supportive and understanding of your masters? Uh, n- no. And then... I think the clincher is this, James 4, 7, the same word, all these passages in the same words as Ephesians 5, where then James says, therefore, submit to God. Is there James saying, therefore, be understanding and supportive of God? Probably not. Benita had the right reaction right there. Yes, probably not. The word itself, in the context, means to do something under the authority of another. That's what submission is, to do something under the authority of another. Any questions before we continue? Doug? It seems like the, um, the argument that this, this is just cultural um, comes apart, too, because it was not just cultural for husbands to love their wives, mm-hmm. offer themselves, Correct. sacrifice themselves for their wives. They had multiple pair of arms. That, you know, that was normal in the day. That was cultural. Normal. Correct. Yeah. So Doug's point is that the, the, the role of the husband was very countercultural, especially because the woman was not even a legal citizen at the time of first centuries. And he's telling them to, the husband to do something that was unheard of in culture in general, specific, especially Gentile culture, to whom he's writing in Ephesians, right? Doug, the funny thing is I've never seen an egalitarian saying that the husband part is cultural. It tends to be only the wife part being cultural. cultural. The law of the wife selflessly is universal and everlasting, but the submission is culturally bound, so, which is you know, a, a, a poor argument there. So the command... In verse 24, look at verse 624, or 524. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. The command to submit means that the wife will defer to her husband in everything. See that in verse 24. Now, with every rule, there, are, there will be exceptions. 
And we'll look at exceptions in just a second. But before we consider the exceptions, let the weight of this truth sink into our hearts. Wives are called by God to, allow their hus- to, to follow their husbands in everything. That's, that's the, the general rule. It's not a suggestion given by the apostle, and it's not a matter of just wisdom. It is a command given by the Lord God Almighty. Right? That's what we're reading here. Nothing, nothing more than that. Nothing less than that. And the reason that I would want us to not think about exceptions just yet is that our tendency is to immediately lower, lower up. We see something that God requires of us, and our natural tendency is to immediately try to figure out ways that that doesn't apply to us. That's what I mean, that we try to lower, lower up. And I don't talk, I'm not saying just women, women in this subject, but all of us tend to do that in every subject. Okay? So let's take a beat, let this sink in, do not lower it up, just receive this. Instead of thinking about how we don't have to obey, we should rather start thinking about how we will obey the commands of the Lord. Why? Listen to what Psalm 119, verse 86 says. All your commandments are faithful, or are sure, are valid, are good. So, simple exercise on syllogistic logic. All the commandments are faithful. Ephesians 5.24 is a commandment. Those are the two premises. The major premise, all the commandments are faithful. Minor premise, Ephesians 5.24 is a command. What is the only possible logical conclusion? Therefore, this commandment in Ephesians 5.24 is a faithful commandment given to us by God. Uh, Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8 The law of the Lord is perfect, converting or restoring the soul. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Not just Ephesians 5.24, but all that God gives us. And that's why I'm saying, instead of immediately looking for the exceptions, receive it. Receive it from the hand of the Lord, and then start figuring out, how am I going to obey God by His grace. And then down the line, then, we start talking about the exceptions. Because the Bible itself talks about the exceptions. So we would fail if we didn't talk about those exceptions as well. Any questions? So the Holy Spirit, in this passage, as you know, uses the imagery of head and body. The husband is the head and the wife is the body. Look again, verse 22 and 23. Wives, submit your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. The body follows and obeys the commands of the head. This was a first century reality. They didn't know how things worked, but they knew that without the head, the body didn't go. Right? That's, that's very intuitive. You cut, You chop the head out, Unless you're a chicken, the body's done. 
Which I don't know. Do chickens actually run around if you cut their heads? I've never seen that. Okay, all right, established. Uh, not for very long. Okay, yes. But, yeah. uh, so, so, it, it, so we're not drawing on 21st century tech, medical technology. It was known in the first century that the head is what kept the body going, right? You cut an arm, the body still goes. You cut a leg, the body still goes. You cut half of your, the lower half of your body. You're going to die, but it's still going to still hear. People, people are going to die thinking and, and, and talking about things and so on. So following the analogy, when the body does not respond to what the head is telling it to do, what do we call that? When our physical body is not responding to our head is telling it to do, what do we call that? Paralysis. Paralysis is one, yeah, dysfunction, abnormal illnesses, whatever there, something is not right. Is that fair to say? For example, when a person has Parkinson's disease and the body stops listening to the head and starts doing its own thing, we don't look at it as something to be desired or to be proud of. That is the image that Paul is drawing for us when he compares the husband to the head and the wife to the body. For the relationship to work properly, glorify God, and bless all involved, the head must function as head, and the body must function as body. Any questions on that? Okay, so implied in the command for the wife to submit is the command for the husband to lead. And you guys thought I was only going to talk about the wives today. Everybody was like, yeah, let's lean, all the guys are leaning back and popping their margaritas in their coffee. No, I don't think there's any margarita, but no, drinking their coffee and, and just enjoy themselves. But implied in the command for the wife to submit is the command for the husband to lead. This is also implicit Ex, no, not, not, but is, this is also explicit in the imagery of the body and the head. Guys, the truth is the husband's always leading. If you are a husband and you have a pulse, you're leading. Period. He's either leading in a Christ like way or he's leading in a sat- satanic way. Those are the only two ways. We see that clearly in the book of 1 John. Light or darkness, that's it. So we husbands are either leading like Christ or we're leading like Satan. No other option, no break. From the moment you say I do to the moment you die, those are the two things you're doing, the two things that I am doing as a husband, either one or the other. Because no matter what, we are leading. So we see that in this command for the wife to submit, it speaks very loudly to the husband as well. We are taught that the husband must be willing to make decisions. He cannot just sit there and do nothing. In the same way that Christ actively leads his church, the husband actively leads his wife. And if you and I are not doing that, we're failing. And we're painting an ugly picture of Christ to our families 
And our Lord is very jealous for whom he is. So there's great responsibility to the husbands in this teaching that the wife is to be the submissive, the submitting partner in the marriage relationship. Now, the manner of submission, that is, how does it look like? Ta-da! Next time. (laughs) But we're going to see that this is a willing submission. It is also a Christian submission. It is also a specific submission. And it is a respectful submission. And that's where we're going to look at the exceptions. Now, there are some things that the husband cannot ask the wife to do. And there are some things that the wife will be sinning if she submitted to the husband in those things. So, Lord willing, next time we're together, we're going to look at that. Any final questions? All right, so let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are good to us. Thank you that you give us the grace to obey you. Thank you that your spirit is living in us and you do not require anything of us for which you don't equip us. Enable us to hold on to the cross and for the grace that's there to be faithful followers of you and your son and your spirit. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.